God, we commit ourselves to you right now. God, as we look at your word, we pray that, Father, you will open our eyes, open our ears, and open our hearts, God. We pray that your living word will transform our lives. God, we, we ask that you will, um, that we will be cut to the heart, that God, this will make a difference in our lives, that God, this will not just be information, this will not just be an intellectual knowledge, but God, this will be truth that changes our lives. And God, we pray for Joshua. We pray that God, you will anoint him, that Holy Spirit, you will be with him, that God, as he speaks, God, you will speak through him and use him. And God, we pray that also you will bless him and guard him as he serves you in this way. So God, we commit the time into your hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Good morning, church. Paul. Good afternoon now. Good afternoon, church. Can you hear me? Yeah? Testing? Can you hear me? Great. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I want to thank the church for giving me the opportunity to speak again today. When Pastor Kokfai approached me to speak on this topic, Thank you. So I'm going to read a letter that I wrote to Daniel. He's not here right now because apparently when he hears my voice, like surround sound, he couldn't nap at all this morning. So he's away now taking a nap. But this letter is for Daniel. Dearest Daniel, on your first month anniversary, I want to let you know that you're dearly loved. I want to share with you why we chose your name. We named you after Daniel of the Bible. And similar to the biblical character, our prayer for you is that you will walk humbly before God and man, even if you serve in the presence of kings. Daniel, your name means, Dan means judge. Daniel, E, the sound, means my, and L means God. So Daniel, your name means God, my judge, or God is my judge. And I pray that you will live up to your name, Daniel, and learn to fear God because He is the only judge that matters. My prayer for you is summarized by the following verse from the book of Daniel. It's on the screen. Daniel chapter 9, verses 19. Don't be afraid, Daniel, for you are deeply loved by God. 
Be at peace, take heart, and be strong. Uh, Church, today, I pray that the sermon will encourage you. I pray that it will encourage you as you go through difficult moments in life, that you will take heart and be strong and know that you are deeply loved by God. So we'll start with Daniel chapter 6. You can turn me to that chapter. But I, I, for those of you who have been here for a couple of weeks, you know that we are going through a series on the book of Daniel. Last week was a bit different because we skipped. Now, I know most of you are not here, so it doesn't matter, but we actually skipped and swapped the order because my father was ill, so I had to leave uh, to go back to Malaysia. But we are coming back to uh, the same order in Daniel chapter 6. And if you were here a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Chiming preached on Daniel chapter 3, uh, standing firm. And in Daniel chapter 3, you will see that it's a mirror image. There's a mirror because in Daniel chapter 3, Daniel's friends refused to worship the golden image. And then they were thrown into the fiery furnace to be killed. However, God protected them and they escaped unharmed and they were exalted by King Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter 6, it's a mirror. You would see that in this case, it's not Daniel's friends. It's Daniel. He refused to worship the king and he was thrown into the lion's den to be killed. However, God protected him and he came out of the lion's den unharmed. And he is exalted by King Darius. So in this sermon, I want you to realize that there are three characters. We talk about Daniel, but I want us to learn from three characters. First, Daniel, obviously. Next is Darius, the king. But the third character, I would call them the Dirty Dozen, for short. Uh, Dirty because you will see later that these are the administrators and governors of the land that wanted to kill Daniel. So they're dirty, with dirty tricks. And there are a dozen because we know that there's a group of them. Maybe there's five, maybe there's ten, but I'll call them a dozen just for short. So Daniel, Darius, and the Dirty Dozen. So let's start uh, with uh, Daniel. So if you have your Bibles, uh, feel free to turn with me to chapter 6, verse 1. I'll read, It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators over them, and one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them, so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities, that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Now, at the beginning of the book of Daniel, we know that Daniel was captured. He was taken captive as a prisoner. And he was a young man. Uh, actually, maybe even younger than most of the people here. He was perhaps 15, 16, or 17. And due to his excellence, King Nebuchadnezzar eventually made him the ruler over the whole province of Babylon. But 60 years have passed between chapters 2 and chapter 6. And here, in chapter, uh, verses 2, we see that King Darius wanted to make Daniel the whole administrator, in other words, the prime minister across the whole land. 
And due to his excellence, in the last 60 years, he has served under four pagan kings, and he started off really well, and he's ending strong. So this is very impressive because many people start off perhaps strong with a lot of energy for the Lord. But then as the years go by, because we are comfortable, in Daniel's case, he was the most trusted advisor in the whole land. Things could have gone along the way. He could have waned in his trust in God. But no, he started well and is ending strong. So 60 years later, let's read about what happens to Daniel. He has remained true to God and is blameless before men. So let's go to Act 2. So right now, uh, the administrators in this case are like the regional ministers, and the satraps are local leaders, local governors. So there's 120 of them. When they heard that the king was going to make Daniel prime minister, they tried to find grounds. So verses 4, they tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, this man said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So then, these administrators and satraps, which I will call the Dirty Dozen, the Dirty Dozen went as a group to the king and said, May King Darius live forever. Now listen carefully to this. Listen carefully. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed. We have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to God, to any God or human being, during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, should be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So the king Darius put the decree into writing. What's interesting when I read this is that this was clearly an act of deception because the dirty doesn't say it. all the rulers, royal administrators and all the satraps and all the prefects all of us have agreed that we should put this edict into place. Now, we know that's not true. Clearly, Daniel wouldn't have been part of this plan. But they used this deception to try to trick King Dan uh, to try to, uh, to, try to uh, trap uh, Daniel. So I asked myself as I was reading this, why did they want to kill Daniel? Why did the Dirty Dozen want to kill Daniel? Now, if you were a member of the uh, public service at that point in time, if you were a public servant, if you heard that the most excellent administrator in the whole country who is not corrupt, who does not neglect his duties, who was excellent in every way, was going to be made prime minister, wouldn't you be excited? Because you're going to have a boss that would be truly fantastic. But this was not the case. This was not the case. So perhaps, I have two potential reasons. The first reason is that they were envious. 
they were envious that someone else was getting the recognition that they so crave. But secondly, I think even beyond envy, I think it takes even more than just envy to want to kill someone. I think they felt threatened by David because David was blameless. He was not corrupt. And I'm assuming that the dirty dozen had things that they were ashamed of, that they were corrupt, that they neglected their duties, and that they were stealing from the king. And so if you had this excellent administrator above the kingdom, eventually he, Daniel, will find out about all your corrupt activities. He will find out about how you've been neglecting your duties and you may lose your job or worse, you may be put to death because of your corrupt nature, stealing from the king. Now today, this happens a lot uh, in today's uh, situation. When there's a change of governments, the previous government will be afraid because usually they'll get raided their files will be opened up, their offices will be taken, and then they will, people will realize that they've been corrupt uh, and they'll be exposed. And this happened not too long ago, recently, uh, in my home country, where, you know, after the change of government, suddenly there's, everything's opened up. And so it's a very, very uh, dangerous situation for the dirty dozen because if they are found out, many bad things will happen to them. So that's why I think they were very threatened by this change of uh, new, gov new prime minister. So, how did the Dirty Dozen trick King Darius? What did they do? I submit to you this day that they did two things. They, number one, they appealed to his pride. If you read here, for 30 days, no one in the kingdom will pray to any human or God but you. What are they essentially saying to King Darius? They're saying to him, King Darius, you will be God. You will be God. So, number one, he's appealing to his pride. But also, they're appealing to King Darius's desire to please men because they came up to him and said, King Darius, everyone in the kingdom, everyone has agreed that this should be a law. Well, King Darius, because they knew likely that he love to please men. Well, if everyone thinks it's a good idea, it must be a good idea. So I will agree. I will please all these people who are pressuring me. So they managed to trick King Darius because of his love, of his pride, also because of his love of listening good things from people and for his love of praises of men. So I'm going to go to now Act 3. What happened when Daniel learned about this decree. Daniel, let's hear about Daniel's prayer, his defiant prayer and his dependence on God. So let's read from verse 10 now. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed giving thanks to God, just as he had done before. Then, this man went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. 
King Darius, did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being, except to you, your majesty, will be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Aha, gotcha. Daniel, listen carefully. Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree that you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. What is interesting is, even after 60 years of service, Daniel spent 60 years of his life in fact, the far majority of his life in the service of the king, that the dirty dozen still consider him an outsider because they said, Daniel, one of the exiles from Judah, he's an exile, he's not one of us, he's not part of us, still prays to you. Clearly, there was this desire to put Daniel aside I find this very impressive. Daniel's prayer is very, very powerful and very impressive. So let's look at his prayer carefully. I think if you fall asleep now and not listen to anything else, please wake up for this point in time because it's very important that you hear this. Hear about Daniel's prayer. So what happened when Daniel was threatened? When someone threatened his life, his first response was this. He responded, by praying. He responded by praying. Now, as I was pondering this uh, chapter, I asked myself, would I have done this? What I would have done instead was, I started thinking about what are the ways that I could have gotten out of this. I would have thought about all the schemes that I could have counted the evil man. I would have thought about all the ways that I could have gotten out of this. In fact, if you ask my wife, I started doing research about lions. I started researching about lions' dens. I started thinking about what could I have done? Maybe I could have done a counter law to you know, go against Daniel, I mean, against the dirty dozen. I thought, perhaps I could have done a law to say that all the lions should be killed before I go in there. You know? So I spent a number of days and my wife said, stop it, Joshua, you're just going off track. And it is true. But that's our nature. When adversity comes, our first thought of action is, how can I get out of this? But when I look at Daniel, what is very impressive is that his first response was, he went to the same place and prayed to God and he gave thanks. So that's number one observation. I also started thinking and asking myself, Daniel, you're just very stubborn, aren't you? You know, you could actually, again, trying to be smart, you could actually hide in a room for 30 days and pray in quiet and secret. You could go to a bomb shelter, lock the door. No one would ever see you praying in public. Or, because you're so powerful, you could travel to a far away land for 30 days and no one could ever see where you are. There's so many things that he could have done to avoid being caught. But no, Daniel knew the full consequences of his actions. He knew that he would lose his life. But 
I believe that he did this because he was defiant. He was defiant because he was making a stand for his faith. And so he intentionally prayed in the same place, knowing that he will be caught because the people who are out to catch him know exactly where he will pray and when he will pray. You know, again, sometimes I wonder, wouldn't he, it have been better if Daniel just compromised and you know, either hid in a room or went to a faraway place for 30 days and then in 30 days, 30 days time, he came back, became prime minister and then I'll put all these other people all into jail and put them into lion's den. You know? That was what I was thinking about. But all these things he could have done, but he didn't. He chose to defy and pray. And I think one more thing to uh, notice here in this passage is that even after 60 years in power, 60 years serving, he still prayed regularly. He still prayed regularly. He was not just comfortable by the fact that he was the most trusted advisor in the land. He could have relied on his great wisdom and his excellent skills as administrator, his reputation. But no, he relied on prayer and on God even after 60 years. And so it is amazing that he was not too busy to pray, even though he was going to be prime minister. And he did not trust in his own abilities, but he trusted God. So I want you to let this sink into you, sink deeply, that Daniel truly trusted God and went to God in prayer. And because of this, because it was renowned, it was well known that Daniel was a man of prayer, the dirty dozen knew exactly where to find him and they caught him as he was praying, just as he would every day for the past 60 years. So we now see what Daniel did but let's move on to the next part, the final act of chapter 6. Into the den of lions. So I'll, I'm going to skip to verses 16. In verse 16, So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the ring of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating, without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. Well, why couldn't he sleep? Uh, for those of you who know Cantonese, I think it's Taisei, you know, serve him right. Clearly his conscience was ringing he could have felt that I'm so foolish to fall into this trap that I'm going to put into, I'm going to kill my best and most trusted advisor. Perhaps he was angry with himself for falling into this trickery. Perhaps he was guilty for many reasons. He couldn't sleep at night. I'll come back to King Darius later, but I just want you to hold that thought. He could not sleep because he knew that he did something wrong. So the next morning, Okay, next morning, verses 19. At the light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, 
Has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, and I'm sure the king Darius went, okay, may the king live forever. Daniel answered, my God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. This incident exposes the true colors of the three characters of our story today, of Daniel, of Darius, and of the dirty dozen. So let's start with Daniel. How did Daniel respond when he was threatened? How did he respond when there was adversity? And as we talked about late earlier, the first thing he did was not to come up with a plan to save himself, but he went to his maker and he prayed, and he prayed, and he defied the orders. And he was willing to obey God until his death. And what's clear from this incident is that Daniel truly trusted in God and he lived up to his name, his name, Daniel. God is my judge and I will put my trust in him. My brothers and sisters, maybe we have found ourselves thrown into a den of lions. I hope it's metaphorical. But do we pray and do we put our trust in God when circumstances are difficult? When you're under a lot of pressure, do you put our trust in God? I want to share with you a story of a friend of mine. Uh, his name is Richard. And Richard, uh, he lived abroad for many years of his life, had a family, and received a job offer in his own home country uh, from a multinational corporation. That's a very big organization. It was a lucrative position, so he decided to return back to his home country. Uh, it, there was generous benefits, an expat package to bring him back. And he, was, we, he and I were having lunch, and he told me about the very strange practices in this company. Very strange. He said the first time uh, he had, it was lunchtime in his office, lunchtime, the lights all went off, the whole office. It was dark. And in this country, typically, uh, there's a generator, the power goes off because of power trips, and so the generator will come on. So when the power went off, he said, okay, there's another power cut, so the power will go off, and it will come on again. He waited. No, no power. So he went out of his office, and looked around. And to his surprise, people were either napping at the desk or they're sleeping under the desk in their mattresses. They had their own little mat and they're sleeping under his desk. So this company had very strange, a very different practice. So what they did was they, they slept during, after lunch break so that they could be rested and then they worked until late at night. So this was a kind of company, a bit peculiar. But it happens quite a bit. But that was not the strangest part of this company. Uh, he began to realize that this company would practice the gift of giving very lavish favors, very, very lavish gifts, and partly to get contracts. They would say to Richard, everyone does it, Richard. 
Everyone does it. Why can't you? No one's being harmed. Why can't you? And to give you a scale of how lavish these gifts are, I attended a wedding uh, in this country. And you know, in, in Singapore, if you at the, at the hotel or the church or the venue, there'll be a car that's a nice car usually and that's decorated with flowers, right? Is that correct? At this wedding venue, there were about nine vehicles, nine, all decorated with like a nice bow and flowers. And I thought to myself, well, could it be that there were nine family members that came? You know what? I discovered that these were all gifts. In this country, they gave gifts of lavish cars to someone so-and-so when they got married because it's their way of giving a very nice uh, favor or a bribe, as you would know it. And so, my friend Richard found it very hard to operate. And eventually, as he prayed and he has sought a lot about this, he decided that I can't do this. I have to uh, leave this company. And so he eventually left the company. I share this with you because many of you may not be in the same situation. You know, maybe it's not, it's, you won't see a den of lions in the same way as Daniel, but you'll be under pressure be pressured to compromise your values, uh, be it in your schools, be it in your workplaces, and even in your families. There is this pressure that's very strong that's coming upon you. And so, it's not, that, it's not just Daniel, but I pray that we too will be able to withstand this pressure and trust God and pray to ask for our deliverance. So, we started off with Daniel. So that's the first character. But maybe you're not in Daniel's position. Perhaps you may find yourself in Darius's position. So you may not be in Daniel's position where you're not, a, you're not actually a prime minister, but you may find yourself in Darius's situation. Darius had a position of power and authority. And maybe you are in a position of power, or influence. Perhaps you have an ability to influence situations at your workplace, in your schools. And so what's happening here is that Darius had a position of power and ability to make change. And when he realized that he had been tricked into sending his most trusted advisor to his death, what did King Darius do? What did he do? He did absolutely nothing. My brothers and sisters, you may not be a king, but you are in situations where today you may see something that's happening in front of you that may be wrong. You may see an injustice in front of you. You have a choice to make a difference, to correct a wrong. Do you just walk away and just ignore it? Do you just walk away? Or do you, unlike King Darius, stand up and make a difference? I would say that King Darius did nothing because he was afraid of the consequences. Perhaps he was afraid of what will happen to his reputation 
Or what will happen if the other administrators and governors rebel against him? I pray that instead, when we see injustice in front of us, we won't be like this King Darius. Instead, we will act like Queen Esther instead. Because Queen Esther, like King Darius, also had an opportunity to act. Her people, the Jews, were under threat. And I'll read to you a passage from chapters 4, 14, from, Queen, from Esther. So his uncle, Mordecai, said to Queen Esther, Queen Esther, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jews from, will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. My brothers, my sisters, perhaps for such a time as this, you've been placed in your schools, in your workplaces, and you see something that's happening that's not right, and your conscience is searing and it's bothering you, I pray that you'll be like Queen Esther and do something and not be like the cowardly King Darius who walked away, who couldn't sleep at night and yet did nothing. Lastly, we talked about Daniel. We talked about Darius. Let's go to the dirty dozen. Now, you may not be a Daniel, perhaps not today, and perhaps you're not a Darius, but you find yourself in a predicament because you are now behaving like the dirty dozen. You're behaving like the dirty dozen. When threatened, the dirty dozen use deception to get rid of the threat. They use deception to want to kill Daniel. Now, you and I may not resort to murder. I hope not. But let's search our hearts in our workplaces, in our schools, in our social circles, online, do we react with envy when someone else is doing really well? It's our first reaction, one of envy. Or worse still, do we team up with other people to slander, to put down, to ostracize someone we see as a rival? I ask myself this question, how did the dirty dozen end up becoming so evil? How does one become so evil? I don't know about you, but I don't think anyone wakes up one morning and decides, I'm going to murder someone today. I'm going to commit adultery. I'm going to cheat, rob, and steal. I don't think it happens overnight. I think it happens slowly. Slowly and slowly, we get sucked into this trap. And so I want to paraphrase uh, from Clay Christensen. Uh, Clay, Clay Christensen is actually a uh, professor at Harvard Business School. And in his article, How Will You Measure Your Life? In this classic article, How Will You Measure Your Life? He writes this, I'll paraphrase. Over the years, I've watched the fates of my Harvard Business School classmates from the class of 1979 unfold. Slowly, I've seen more and more of them attend my yearly reunions. 
unhappy, divorced, alienated from their children, I can assure you that not a single one of them, when they graduated, came up with a deliberate strategy to get divorced, to be estranged from their children, or even go to jail. But every year as I come, more and more, and some have gotten to jail, some have gotten into really uh, deep trouble. So how does this happen? How does this happen? No one wants to end up in the ditch, but how does this happen? And so, listen carefully. He calls this the just this once principle. Just this once. Unconsciously, we employ the just this once principle in our personal lives when we choose between right or wrong. A voice in our head says to us, Look, Josh, I know that as a general rule, most people shouldn't do this. But in this particular circumstance, just this once, okay, just this once, it's all right. The marginal cost of doing something wrong just this once is very low because you may not get caught. And the marginal benefit is very high. And so many people fall into this trap. Daniel could have said, just this once, I will not pray in public. Just this once, I will go and hide away and not pray for 30 days. Just this once, perhaps I can tell a lie. I can cheat. I won't get caught. Just this once, I can play with my financial numbers so that my report will look very good. Just this once, I can flirt with my colleague because my wife will never know about it. Just this once, I will work late and not see my family yet again. Just this once suckers you in and you don't ever look at the ultimate path that is headed and the full destruction that it entails. If you knew that you will end up in jail or that your family will be broken or that you'll be miserable, you will not do just this once. My brothers and sisters, it is never just this once. So I'm going to conclude with some final reflections. Daniel escaped unharmed. No, Daniel escaped unharmed. He was found innocent and he was exalted after that. And many of us want this to be the happy ending for all of us. But I can tell you the truth. Many of us will not escape unharmed. We will be wounded in this lifetime. We will be slandered. Our names may never be corrected, may never sound good again. And not just us. I want to encourage you that before us, there have been many believers before us and there will be many after us that because of their faith, they will suffer. But after suffering, they will find a much better reward when our Father comes again. Many of us, many people have gone before us. They have faced persecution, flogging, imprisonment, jail. Some were killed. And I'll read to you from Hebrews 11. 
Verse 39, these heroes of faith were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the, author, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning his shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Today, we've talked about Daniel, we talked about Darius, and we talked about the dirty dozen. Let us learn from Daniel. When in trouble, he went to God and prayed and, and sought out God's help. He was steadfast throughout his whole life, and he ran with perseverance the race that was marked out for him. Let us also learn from Darius. Well, unlike Darius, when you see injustice or wrong before you today, don't walk away. For such a time as this, perhaps you've been placed there to make a difference. And lastly, let us learn from the dirty dozen's mistakes. We need to set aside the sin that so easily entangles. And today, my brothers and sisters, it starts by saying, no to just this once. Let's repent and follow him. As I conclude, I want to share something uh, that surprised me. I started off uh, talking about my son, and now he's at the back of the auditorium, uh, sleeping, I hope. I want to share with you something about Daniel. And it surprised me when I became a new father. I'm a father for six months now. I had this picture in my mind that when I held my son for the first time, it would be so wonderful that I'll be in this euphoria. You know, because when I first saw my wife walk down the aisle when we were getting married, there was this euphoria that I had. And I thought, maybe when I hold Daniel again, oh, someone else's baby. <laughs> when I held Daniel again for the first time, maybe I'll have this euphoria. But when I held Daniel for the first time, it was not love at first sight. I didn't have any of these fatherly emotions, you know, protective feelings. I had none of that. Sorry, Daniel. Uh, in fact, in the following month, Lydia and I were so tired from the endless cycles of feeding, burping, changing diapers, keeping him awake so he could feed, that most of the time I was just angry and tired. I was very, very relieved that when I spoke to some other fathers, because I was really at my wit's end, I spoke to some other fathers that I trusted, and they confessed to me that they too had entertained thoughts of shaking their crying child. And some, in fact my best friend, even thought of returning the child back. So it wasn't that start, but slowly and surely, with the service, you know, by serving Daniel, I think my love for Daniel grew. It's grown quite a lot. 
over the past six months. Now, I'm a pretty creepy dad. I'm creepy because at night, I would open this door and sneak into his room. So there's a bit of light in the background, right? So I would watch him as he sleeps, peering above his crib. I'll watch him breathe. So I'll see his chest go up and down, up and down. And then I would listen to his breath. I would sometimes smell him. That new baby smell, oh, so wonderful. And I would just touch his little, his, I'll touch him very gently, not to wake him up. Very creepy. <laughs> but over the last few months, my love for my son has grown, has welled up. The actions came first, and then the emotions came. But it dawned upon me, it became very evident that the love that I have for my son is so imperfect. It's so imperfect. For goodness sake, you know, there are times where I wanted to shake him or return him. And yet, there's nothing that I would not do for my son. And it dawned upon me that what more, my father in heaven, his love for me is perfect. My love is imperfect, and yet I would do anything for my son. Yet my father in heaven who is perfect, has this perfect love for me. He wants the best for me. And he even died on the cross for me. So as we close, I want to leave you with this encouragement. You may go be going through tough times. You may be slandered at your workplace. You may have been cheated by a business partner or a classmate, or you may have been betrayed by a close family member. The Lord wants to tell you this day, do not be afraid, for you are deeply loved. Be at peace, take heart and be strong. God's love for us is perfect, and He loves us, and that's the motivation, that in our most difficult circumstances, we know that we have a perfect Father in heaven that loves us. Let us pray. I'll ask the musicians to come up quietly. I just want us to just take a moment now. The Lord wants to say to you, my dear brothers, my dear sisters, he just wants to remind you again, wherever you are right now in your walk with God, that the Lord loves you deeply. He loves you deeply. And He would do anything in the world for you. He cares for you. He watches over you. And if you find yourself in a position where you're under threat today, Go to your Father in heaven, for He loves you deeply. So I just want you to just respond to the Lord right now. Wherever you are, perhaps you need God to remind you that He loves you again today. Perhaps 
Or perhaps you're in Darius's position that you're struggling, you see an injustice in front of you, something is going wrong, and yet you don't do anything. You are afraid. I ask this day that God will give you courage to do the right thing because for a moment like this, the Lord has placed you where you are to make a difference. Don't walk away and do nothing. Or perhaps you're struggling in sin. You're behaving like the dirty dozen. The Lord wants you to know that He will help you to say no, to say no to just this once, to repent and to turn back to Him again. Whether you are a Daniel, a Darius, or a dirty dozen, the Lord says to you that He is enough for you and He loves you so very much.
before you leave today, I want you to respond to the Lord. You know who you are. The Lord has spoken to you. Perhaps you are in under threat. Come back to God and know that He is trustworthy. Just like Daniel. And if you have a chance to make a right of a wrong that you're seeing, don't do nothing. Take courage and take a stand. And finally, for those of us who've fallen away from God, repent and come back to Him for He is ready to receive you. Respond to the Lord this day. In your own way, respond to the Lord. you to lift up your hands to receive the blessings from God. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters today. I pray that the Word of God may sink deep into your hearts. May they be encouraged to know that you are with them. May they be emboldened to act and may they leave sin and follow after you. For you are deeply loved by God. Go in peace. Take heart and be strong. In your name we pray. Amen.